So we continue in the series uh, today of a long-standing series that we've been going through about understanding the Bible. About 2,000 years ago, a man named David, who was a king, he was a warrior, he was a worshiper, a man who chased after the heart of God, he wrote uh, the following psalm about how he felt about the words of God. Psalm 19 says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul continues to instruct Timothy in in, uh, the ministry, and he writes these words, chapter 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Let me just pray for you all just real quickly for this time. Lord, I ask that you would again just open your word up to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would also to help us as we open up our hearts and our ears. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to speak into our hearts and that we'd be ready to put into practice what you have for us today. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So in continuing this series of Understanding the Bible, let me review real quickly about last Sunday. Last Sunday, uh, we talked about hermeneutics, big old word, but, uh, uh, and there were several reasons that uh, should motivate us to study God's Word. And hermeneutics, again, is the studying of uh, a certain text and, 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 uh, and literature, just as it applies to God's Word. But those reasons that we should be motivated to study God's Word is, first of all, the Bible is the Word of God. We discovered that last uh, Sunday. We heard about that. And uh, because God wrote it, because God wrote it through human effort, of course, but inspired by God, we should be studying the Bible. Uh, the Bible nourishes us spiritually. Another reason why we should be studying God's Word. We shouldn't be just feeding on the physical food. We should also be feeding our, our souls and being able to feed upon God's Word. And then we also discovered... Uh, as well, that the Bible encourages us to see ourselves as we are. You know, sometimes we may have a false view of who we are, and we need to uh, be reminded of who we are and who we're not, and, uh, and the Bible helps us in that, and so we should be studying God's Word in that way. Uh, the Bible also exposes false teaching. We, uh, we need to be reminded of what is right and what is true. And so when we have the original, the, the true... Um, uh, scripture and text in front of us, we can line it up to anything that we've heard or read before, and we can see if it matches up with Scripture, and we can then expose false teaching. We should be studying God's Word because also, too, the Bible empowers us to resist temptation. And if we don't study God's Word and we don't realize what's there for us, then we have that inability uh, to be able to watch out and resist that temptation. I hope you realize that we defeat temptations the same way Jesus did during those 40 days in the wilderness. It's with the Word of God. So it's important 
to be able to study that. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul writes about the armor of God that enables us to stand firm against all the schemes of the evil one, he only mentions one offensive weapon. And that weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So how can we expect to stand firm against his attacks if we never stab those attacks with a sword, with God's Word? So we need to be studying God's Word to be able to do that. We also, too, realize that the Bible brings transformation. And so studying God's Word is important to us so we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, being able to know what God has for us and our lives be changed. Also, too, the Bible is a source of comfort and hope. So we study God's Word, so we find out what that is and be able to, um, in those difficult times, be able to come to God's Word and be comforted and be reminded of the hope we have. So uh, we need to be studying God's Word. We also study God's Word because the Bible is the foundation of a storm-weathering life. We go through life storms. We need to be ready. And in order to be ready, we need to be studying God's Word and have that firm foundation already set for us. And so God's Word can do that for us as well. And we uh, also do study the Bible because it has an important threefold purpose. And again, it's to reveal God to us, to reveal the way of salvation as well, and to reveal and equip us to live the life that God desires. Those things, all in God's Word, and being able to study God's Word, we, that's the motivation. Nine reasons, nine very good reasons for studying the Bible. And David in Psalm 19 uh, wrote some good reasons as well. We can list some more. You know, the Bible renews our lives. It is trustworthy. The Bible makes the inexperienced wise. The Bible makes our heart glad and lights up our eyes. The Bible is pure and will endure forever. God's Word is reliable and altogether righteous. God is, God's Word is more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. And it warns us of danger and rewards us greatly when we follow its teachings. So David had it pretty correct as well, too, as far as uh, reasons to be able to study God's Word and value it. And because of these reasons, we should desire to be motivated to, to be complete, compelled to read and understand the Bible as well. We, sh- we should be ready to dig into God's Word. And if we don't read the Bible or try to understand the Bible and handle it correctly, we will neither experience its power or its benefits. We need to be ready to be studying God's Word. And this is why hermeneutics, the science and art of studying and understanding and interpreting the Bible, is so very important. You probably haven't heard that word used many times other than the last few Sundays that I've been here doing this. But it's an important term, an important thing that we need to be doing. Studying, understanding, and being able to interpret the Bible. Robert Stein, in his book, um, Playing by the Rules, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, he describes the importance of interpreting the Bible correctly. He says, The importance of interpreting the Bible correctly cannot be overemphasized. The claim that the Bible is inspired and that it is God's revelation to humanity is ultimately of little value without some understanding of how that divine relation relation should be interpreted. Excuse me, revelation should be interpreted. When we describe the Bible as infallible or without error, these terms are meaningless if we do not know how to interpret it. So we can believe the Bible to be true, but if we don't know why, we, we haven't studied God's Word enough to give a reason why, then it just doesn't, it falls on deaf ears to those who don't believe the Bible or to be true or don't believe that there's a God. We need to be able to express that and let them know 
what is the reason why? So if you, if you read the Bible or you are already interpreting it, you already have a hermeneutical theory in mind. You already have that in place. You cannot read the Bible for long before the question of what does this mean begins forming in your mind. You've probably done that in devotions time or maybe in a Bible study. And you get to thinking, what does this mean? How does it apply to me? So the issue isn't whether or not we have a basic interpreting framework, but because we all do. The issue is whether or not our framework is clear or unclear, adequate or inadequate, or correct or incorrect. Is our framework, our way of interpreting the Bible, our hermeneutical process, is it leading towards the truth of God's Word, or is it leading further away from it? And we need to be careful. Make sure that we're interpreting God's Word correctly. So, we will look at two foundational principles for understanding the Bible, which I've heard described as taking aim and always respecting the king. And we most likely won't get to that second one, uh, foundational principle, and we'll probably have to save that for next Sunday. But today we'll look at at least taking aim. Now, there are three necessary components for communication to occur. Three necessary components. And if any of these items are missing or lacking, communication becomes impossible. The three components are the sender, the message, and the receiver. Those are the three components. Pretty basic. In spoken communication, the components are described as speaker, speech, and listener. Or today, pastor, sermon, and you guys. And so there's three components in that. In written communication, which we'll look at a little deeper here today, the components are author, text, and reader, or the interpreter. So that's, that's, that's you guys, reading God's Word. And unfortunately, unfortunately, there are some complications to the process of communication. One is the author's emotions and experiences. All authors have both emotions and experiences within their writing. They, they pour it in. And if a speaker or writer is to be clearly understood, the listener or the, the reader must know something about their background to be able to associate with why they're writing what they're writing. If someone gives a talk about forgiveness, would it make a difference in how you listen to that person if maybe they were a victim of child abuse? Or maybe they were a Nazi concentration camp survivor? and they talk about forgiveness, would that mean a little bit deeper for you? If we are all to fully understand the author's words, we must know something of the author's experience and of their emotions into that writing, in that communication. In the same way, every reader and listener has certain experiences, certain emotions as well, and levels of interest. As someone who has just suffered great loss would read the book of Job uh, differently than someone whose life is going smoothly. It, it just it's, Perception is different there. Someone who has gone through divorce would read Honor Your Husband or Love Your Wife differently than a 10-year-old boy would or maybe even a happily celebrating couple uh, celebra celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. Read differently. The author's emotions and experiences can complicate communication. Another complication to communication, is the filter of language. The filter of language. Now, 
all communication acts are filtered through language, which is always an imperfect science and art, with several obstacles along the way. Let me share some obstacles that you might find as, as a, a filter of language is used. First of all, there's the loss of vocal inflection. The loss of vocal inflection. In written text, the advantage of voice is lost. When you read the Bible, you really can't get that inflection unless it says it. Jesus was angered. Oh, okay, we get it now. We, we, we lose that, though, the loss of vocal inflection there. Text messaging, prime example of the loss of vocal inflection. Look at this text message here. There's a little assumption of vocal inflection here. It says, and I don't know if you can read or not, it says, are you up? And they reply, yes. And they say, well, are you mad? And they say, well, of course not, why? They say, well, I don't know, the, the yes sounded angry. <laughs> Another text message. Another text message, trying to overcome lost vocal inflection by overthinking. Says, okay, he texted hi, what do I say? And the response is, well, say hi back, you freak. Don't overthink it. And then you say, with, with or without a smiley face. And then they say, obviously put the smiley, smiley or else he might think uh, you're mad. But the smiley might be too aggressive, so just do a regular one. Not the fancy emoji one. And don't wink, you're not a slut. <laughs> really? A lot of overthinking there. And a scriptural example. In John chapter 14, verse 1, in the English Standard Version, Jesus says, Believe in God, believe also in me. Both are interpreted as commands, but what if we read that first phrase as a simple statement, as the NIV has it? It says, You believe in God, you should, all, you should believe also in me. Or, or maybe we could read the first phrase as a rhetorical question. You believe in God? Well, then also believe in me. All these readings are perfectly acceptable grammatically in this. And they make a great deal of sense considering Jesus is about to say, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He's leading up to that type of thing. But the problem is we can only be sure if we heard Jesus' vocal inflection. Only if we've heard it. Hard to read into that. One obstacle, though, is that vocal inflection is lost in written written communication. A second obstacle we find here in the filter language is transmission. Transmission. How the text is transmitted. Nobody is a, per is a perfectly clear communicator. Sometimes stuff just comes out badly. And you probably recall some of those church bulletin announcements that circulated around the internet. One of them was, for those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. <laughs> Yikes. Or the other one about the missionary that was visiting the church, Bertha Belch, missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Methodist. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. <laughs> and texting gives us some good examples of how communication breaks down through transmission as well. One of the texts I came across, it says, I am here for you. And the response was, thanks. I'm going through a tough time, so it means a lot. And sorry, I lost all my contacts. Who is this? And then the response says, this is your Uber driver. <laughs> I'm here to pick you up. <laughs> oh. Okay. Or another text message where Mikey missed the bus and mom helps out. He says, I missed the bus. 
And mom says, oh, okay, on my way. And he says, but I hit a person in the driver's head at the ER. <laughs> so he missed the bus, but he hit the person. <laughs> kind of get that. And then another text message where the college son uh, with his mother says, hi. Hi, honey, says the mom. Sup. Just working. How about you? In English. Just working, comma. How about you? Question mark. He said, no, I'm, I'm in English class. <laughs> Transmission sometimes gets complicated. We all misspeak at times, so we should be courteous listeners. If we don't get it, ask. If we don't get it, try to accept what's going on there. Try to understand what's happening. And we should try to understand the people, what, what people meant to say. Transmission can cause us, cause us to be misunderstood or to misunderstand. Another obstacle in the filter language is that meaning is lost in translations. Meaning is sometimes lost in translations. When translating from one language to another, sometimes it is difficult to capture the meaning of a phrase. For example, take a look at these uh, translation attempts into English, like this sign, Chinese, and it says, Do not disturb. Tiny grass is dreaming. <laughs> okay, I've never seen that sign before as far as don't walk on the grass. Or another one, I don't know if you can see this one at all, but uh, that is a fire extinguisher there. And it says, it says, execute, oh, excuse me, hand grenade. <laughs> hand grenade. That doesn't look like a hand grenade to me. Or another one. You've seen these on the floor, you know, watch out, it's wet. It says, execution in progress. Yikes. <laughs> watch out for that one. Or this uh, next picture, some of you internet people see these a lot. They call it a, an internet hole. So you plug it into the internet hole, evidently. Trans, trans, uh, translations kind of sometimes lose the meaning. In Scripture, the meaning of phrases might not get completely and thoroughly translated as well. That's why we have resources to help us understand the Hebrew words and the Greek words, and we need to go to them, and it gives us richer meaning of the Scripture. Filter of language has its obstacles to overcome. Another complication to communication is the hermeneutical lens. The hermeneutical lens. In between the, the reader or the interpreter and the text is this lens. And some see the Bible as a history book. So they find historical data, and they just gobble it up. Others see the Bible as maybe a storybook, and they find helpful moral lessons from those stories. Some see the Bible as an ethics textbook, and they walk away with some rules and some doctrines. The hermeneutical lens that you wear when you approach the Bible will largely determine what you see in the Bible. We all have this lens. We all do. If you want to see Jesus, who is a middle-class Republican, you can find him there. If you got the you know, hermeneutical lens worn there. If you want to see a Jesus, who is a Democrat, you can find him there too. If you want to find reasons to criticize God's actions as unjust, you can find it there. If you have the hermeneutical lens on, this kind of that will show it to you. It all comes through that kind of lens. And it separates us. It separates us from the text. And we need to be careful with that type of thing. But another complication to communication is then 
the hermeneutical distance. Hermeneutical distance. We're separated from, from our text in a number of significant ways. There, there's, there's time. I mean, this was written way back when, you know, looking at the Bible. Way back when, and how, how does that relate to our time here? So we have that distance going on. Uh, culture. If you haven't been in the Middle East, if you haven't been to Israel, if you haven't been in those areas, then you probably don't, aren't aware of the culture that's going on, and it's also implied within Scripture. The language, well, good luck. There's a big distance there. Geography, when they talk about the different cities and places and things going on there, there, there's what does Hebron mean compared to Jerusalem? Where's all these other places? Why is this going on? And and so you you got to bridge that that distance of of geography. Religion, religion is also too in a hermeneutical distance. Uh, Jesus was not a Christian. He was a Jew who wore a prayer shawl. He refrained from pork. <laughs> he worshipped on Saturdays. So it, there's, there's that distance, hermeneutical distance, that we have going on there as well. Communication is simply, very simply, the convergence of an author, a text, an interpreter, which is very simple. That convergence coming together. But language is complicated. It's a complicated process you know, because both author and reader have their own emotions and experiences. may hinder understanding. All communication is filtered through language, which has obstacles there to overcome. And we all have a hermeneutical lens, and, and often what we, we are looking for determines what we find. And we are separated from the, the text by time and language and culture and geography and religion. If you add all this up, you might come away with a pessimistic view of understanding anything. <laughs> but the amazing reality is that we do understand each other. Parents tell their children to clean their rooms, and they understand the instruction. <laughs> now, whether, whether they do it or not is determined by some other factors, of course. Men and women actually get married and have kids, and they cross the most mystifying divide of all human communication between a male and a female. That gets tough sometimes. Simply put, language works. And why? Because despite all the difficulties inherent in language... We are somehow able, through considerate listening, to understand one another. Now, do we understand perfectly? Of course not. But we get close enough to buy and sell, to, to make appointments, to express feelings, to resolve conflicts and misunderstandings, to describe events, to teach and learn new things, maybe even to tell a joke and now and then and have people get it. Communication does work. We really can come within understanding distance of the author if we're working at it. Besides that, just the fact that some of you come in the sanctuary each Sunday and somewhat understand what I'm saying is proof that communication can happen if we work at it. So this brings us to the principle, the foundational principle of AIM. And what is this AIM? Basically, the letters A-I-M stand for Author's Intended Meaning. The author's intended meaning. The aim must be your aim. The author's intended meaning must be your aim, your, your goal, your objective when we study the Bible. So 
when we ask ourselves what's the author's intended meaning, then we're getting in the right direction of how to study God's Word. Take a look at this picture. What do you think the author's intended meaning was for this? Duck or rabbit? Hmm. Uh, clearly. Brandon says so, so it is. <laughs> or, or, or how about this next picture? Young or old lady? What do you see? Now, if you see the old lady, and you're looking for the young lady in there, look at the old lady's nose, and you'll see the young lady's chin turned away. If you see the young lady... Well, of course, her chin is the big old nose of the old lady. <laughs> or this next picture. I'm gonna, you're probably still studying it. Sorry. How about the young or old guy? Which do you see? I mean, you can see the cowboy guy turning away, and uh, you know, or you can see the old guy kind of hunkered down like this with the cowboy hat. What was the author's intended meaning of these pictures? Kind of hard to find out sometimes unless Brandon's there and he can interpret it for you. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, you're on your own. People can look at the same drawing and they see something different. But is there any way for us to know for sure what the object is? Can we trust Brandon? Can we trust others to tell us what it is? We need to ask the artist, what was your intent when you drew this picture? To confuse us all, I'm sure. But when we look at a passage in the Bible, our goal is to figure out the author's intended meaning. You know, what did Paul mean, Peter, Moses, Isaiah? What do they mean when, when they wrote these verses? Sometimes people ask the wrong question in studying the Bible. They say, what does this text mean to you? And that shouldn't be it. That shouldn't be the first question, and it's, it's, it's actually the wrong question to ask. The correct question is, and it's up there for you, you know, what, what did the author mean when he wrote the passage? What did the author mean? What was going on there? There are certain things that we don't have the right to simply interpret what they mean to us. One is military orders. You don't interpret those. What they mean to you. A summons to court or, traffic, or a traffic ticket. You, you, don't, you don't interpret that in your own way. An answer to a math problem. I, I tell you, the answer is the answer, and you come up with something else that's wrong. <laughs> a written assignment from our boss. You don't interpret that in the way you think it's right. And even a legal contract. All these things. We don't have the right to interpret the way we think is best. Why would we think we have the right to make the Bible mean whatever is convenient, comfortable, or culturally acceptable at the time? We also, too, don't have the right as well to do that. And when studying the Bible, we need to take the interpreter's pledge. And that interpreter's pledge is by promising to seek the aim, the whole aim, and nothing but the aim, the author's intended meaning. That you do that. That's where you should begin. That's where you should be in all around the Scripture and come out in. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, can a passage mean different things to different people? Good question. I think uh, it would be helpful that uh, we look at the difference between meaning and application. There's a difference there. Meaning is singular, and it is tied to the text. There is just one meaning, one interpretation, one meaning. 
but how we live out the text, how we apply it, then that's varied. There are multiple ways. Look, uh, the example, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's given in Scripture. Love your neighbors as yourself. Pretty clear. We should be giving love, those around us, as we love ourselves. Okay, pretty straight. There's one meaning, one meaning. But then how is it applied? You know, I may love my neighbor by cleaning out the gutters. You may love your neighbor by going over and bringing over some, some baked goods. You may love your neighbor by praying for them. It's all applied differently in a lot of different ways. It may be different from how your parents or your friends or your spouse or someone living on the other side of the world would apply it. <clears throat> so there are a lot of different applications, a lot of different ways to apply the text. And how do we know there is only one author's intended meaning? Let me suggest a few reasons why. <clears throat> one is that God is a source of the Bible. God is the source of the Bible. God guided the process, of course, through human writers, and He doesn't change. He is always consistent. And so what we read in the Bible is consistent as well. And there's, there, there's one course in those intended meanings <clears throat> from the author. Another, another suggestion, uh, reason actually, of knowing that there's only one uh, author's uh, intended meaning is the Bible tells us that we can understand it. We can understand it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 says, For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And so as we understand Scripture, it doesn't become complicated in a way where there's more than one, one intended meaning from the author. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 says, In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So as we read God's Word, <clears throat> we can know that there's the one meaning going on. The beauty of the Bible is its simplicity. <clears throat> In the language that is used, and it used was the common Greek language that everybody, the fishermen, the shopkeepers, all of them, they knew that language at that time. Which tells us of God's desire to speak to us in a way that we can understand. God has laid it out in His Word that way. Another reason, knowing that there's only one meaning, <clears throat> is that the Bible tells us to hold on to the Bible's teachings. Hold on to the Bible's teachings. 2 Timothy 1, verse 13 says, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. You know, if there's more than one meaning going on in, in, in that portion of Scripture or whatever, how could we hold on to the sound teaching? How could it be sound when we're getting different meanings going on? Also, another reason is we are commanded to rebuke those who disobey. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Familiar verses 16 and 17. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So how can we how can we do this when there isn't a singular meaning behind Scripture? Kind of difficult to do. A fifth meaning, or excuse me, reason <laughs> is uh, knowing that there's only one meaning. We are told to have one mind. We are to have one mind. How can we be one in thought and mind if the Bible means different things to different people? <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 
says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. How can that happen when there's more than just one meaning to a portion of scriptures? And a sixth reason is that it's a necessity of human language. When you have double meanings going on in, in communication, it's not good. You don't know exactly what that person is saying. Think about how chaotic our world would be if real estate contracts, if tax codes, if mortgage loans, marriage vows, traffic and criminal laws, all of them could be interpreted personally. Now, we could just interpret it the way we would want to. Single meaning of the author is an obvious and indispensable characteristic of human language. And we don't get the, this perfectly correct all the time. But as human beings living in social groups, if we cannot understand each other, the, the assimilation as we know it is over. Just think about the Tower of Babel and how well that went when people could not understand each other and they, there were different languages going on there. You know, it's, it's not the tame issue of the duck or rabbit we're talking about. We're talking about the issue of tolerance versus intolerance. We're talking about the issue of what is right and what is wrong. We're talking about the issue of someone giving you a drink of water when you're choking. <laughs> Thank you. Ooh, and ice, too. Well... Chew on one of those. It's those issues that really mean a lot because this world is looking for what is right and what is wrong, and it seems like they got it backwards. They got it backwards. And when we think there are multiple meanings from the author of this book, then we get into trouble. We get into trouble of what is right and what is wrong. So if the author's intended meaning must be our aim, if the aim, if, if, if the aim must be our aim, how do we get there? How do we get to the author's intended meaning? Well, first of all, by recognizing that God spoke to people in a language that he created. So God created this language. He spoke to us in it. God is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows how our brains work. He knows, and he used natural human language to communicate the ideas necessary for us to have a relationship with him. He knew what, what to say, how to say it in order for us to get it. God spoke on our terms in a way we can understand him, and he's pretty good at it. And if we believe that God created the world, that he loves the world he created, and that he desires to communicate that love to the people he created, the question of competency and communication rests more on God than upon us. So could God create humanity with the ability to understand the divine message? Yeah, he could. He could. Human language works every day. Every day. It has since the dawn of humanity. And the fact that human beings live in community, we send text messages... We listen to radio, we tell stories, we write books, among many other things. It's all fairly convincing evidence that this human ability of language functions considerably well. 
So God created a language and it's meant to work. How else do we get to the author's intended meaning? Well, by bridging that hermeneutical distance. That hermeneutical distance. We are separated in a number of significant ways. Again, we mentioned time, culture, language, geography, and religion. But if, if National Geographic can take us to exotic places through their publications and pictures, and the Hist- History Channel can take us back in time, why can't Bible scholars provide resources that can do the same thing? Uh, the fact is, <laughs> they can, they have, and they do. You know, I, I can't speak Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, I guess, but I can grab an English Bible... And, and I can read it in my own language. You may have never been able to visit the Middle East, but you can grab a Bible atlas to transport you there. You may not understand certain terms, but you can pick up a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia, Bible encyclopedia, be able to find out what those terms are. We can bridge the barriers of, of time and culture and language and geography by using those resources. They're before us. Bible scholars, they put in so much time, life's work, to be able to help us understand God's Word better. So use those resources and we can bridge that distance. We can also get to the author's intended meaning by being willing to adjust our pre-understandings. Our pre-understandings. What do I mean by that? Pre-understanding refers to what we unreflectively bring as we come and, and we, we're reading of, of a text. And as a result, it raises questions about our ability to understand the Bible. Because we have these pre-understandings already as we come and before God's Word. This is why we often find ourselves in conflict with one another about what the Bible says. You sure it says that? About, oh, I don't know, I'm, I'm reading something different here. And we already have these pre-understandings. We are surprised that what is clear to us is not clear to someone else. How can't you, you can't see that right there. What, you know, come on, Scripture says. And one of the reasons why we can't just read the Bible and let it say to us whatever it has to say and be done with it is this issue of pre-understanding. We come to the Bible out of a particular culture with a certain worldview, with a set of things that we, we think we already know and we all already understand, with certain bottom lines about what is reasonable and what is not. All these things come to the table when we come to Scripture. These things that we come to the Bible with affect the way we hear the Bible and also aid in our interpretation of the Bible and direct the way we read the text and draw concepts and conclusions from it, that pre-understanding. We all have our own pre-understandings, which is unavoidable. If you have them, don't worry about, I mean, don't, i got to clean my pre-understandings up to make it all blank. You, you can't, because <laughs> you've grown up a certain way, or you've been told certain things, and that's what you know. <clears throat> but we all have those pre-understandings. So the goal is not to come to the text with a blank mind, but to make the effort to understand the mind that we are bringing to the text. What is your brain thinking about this stuff, and why? Why is it thinking like this? I come with my pre-understanding, and if I make an effort to be aware of what I am bringing to the text, I may be prepared to make some changes in my worldview where the text may seem to demand it. If I'm reading Scripture, and I have some pre-understandings about uh, coming with me about this portion of Scripture, if I can understand and go, okay, I, 
this is what I know. I realize that, but this is what Scripture is saying. And it's a little different from what I know. Then you've got to be willing to make the adjustments to your pre-understanding compared to what Scripture is doing. And someone might say, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. I can do whatever I'm at, uh, do it wherever I'm at and whatever I'm doing. I don't have to go to church. And I've heard that before. Church is not that important. Now I would ask, didn't you, did you get that from the Bible? <laughs> or did you read that into the Bible? <laughs> I thought Jesus bled and died for the church. Uh, church is not important. If it mattered that much to Jesus, it should matter that much to us. So we have all of these pre-understandings, you know, men's role in life, women's role in life, the right and the wrong, all these different things. We come with these pre-understandings. We need to come to God's Word willing to adjust our pre-understandings in order to get to the author's intended meeting. When we're willing to do that, then we're on our way to find out what God's Word is trying to tell us. We're going to have to stop there so we can uh, pick up next Sunday with uh, the second foundational principle. But uh, I trust that all of this will help you get a little more idea of what it means to, get, to understand the Bible, understand God's Word. Because when you study it, you can study it, but you can come away with it going, oh, what was that? <laughs> why, why is this here? What, what's going on? But when you understand God's Word better, go through it a little bit more with taking aim, author's intended meaning, making sure that's right there in front, then you're going to be guiding in, in the right direction in studying God's Word. I'm going to invite the worship team coming up. They're going to lead us in one more, one more song. As they do, there's one other portion of Scripture I want to leave with you. One that I hope will, will continue to guide you, maybe also challenge you as well. I think all of us can try to uh, be guided by this. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We need to correctly handle God's word. We study it. We, we, we have devotions through it. God speaks to us. Are we handling God's word correctly? We need to do that. We need to correctly handle the word of truth because that's where we find life. What kind of life are we finding? <laughs> I trust that we are finding true life in him. As we sing this last song, I trust that you also too can just continue to be reminded that God loves you dearly. And his word is valuable. We as a church have that as one of our core values. We value the Bible, God's word. We believe it to be true. Why? I trust all these things coming together these last few Sundays will help you be able to begin to give an answer of why you value God's word as well. If God's speaking to your heart about something in any, any form or way about all this, if, if, the, if the principle of author's intended meaning was pretty inspirational to you and you want to come to God, I... Uh, that's, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can speak to you in a lot of different ways. And so if uh, you feel like you need to come and pray, the altar is open. You can come and pray as we uh, sing this last song.